Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the 49-week challenge reading plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. But let's be honest, right now we're not gathering with the stay-at-home order, so those reading plans are still in the lobby. Good luck getting one. You can't Uh, get one, but they're there. Yes, they are. So just for good measure. But uh, we also like to spend time answering questions. So if you've got some questions as you're reading along or listening to our brilliant conversation, feel free to send those into our Facebook page at the Grove Church uh, here in Marysville, Washington. Give it a thumbs up while you're there. Uh, Shoot those uh, questions through a direct message, or you can also email them to info at grove.church. We'd love to take some time at the end of every podcast trying to answer as many of these questions as possible. So keep sending them in. Thanks so much for doing what you've done so far. Yeah. Hopefully there's a, a little bit of an improvement in the audio, audio quality this week. Uh, we got some newer mics. Not, uh, yeah. Evan, not Evan was super excited about these mics. So I was. Um, they're not insanely props. nice, but they're way nicer than the like $7 little USB mic I was using. So it, it works hey, listen, out. Listen, my mic was perfect. I don't know why you made me upgrade. Sorry, man. Uh, so today we're going to do, I, I, this will be a really fun one. We're going to do a character study of John. Uh, not John the Baptist, who we've already done a character study on, yeah. um, but the John who wrote the Gospel of John in addition to the epistles and uh, Revelation. So we've already done a deep dive into the Gospel of John, so we probably won't spend um, as much time in that book as we will in talking about kind of the other parts of John's legacy. But obviously you can't really talk about John without referring back to his Gospel because there's a lot of great content there. Yeah, and I think the goal is just to kind of give you a uh, deeper perspective and understanding uh, of the individuals and the people that God used uh, throughout the, the scripture and the Bible as we read through it. So um, yeah. you, this isn't going to be, hey, let me read this big passage of scripture. It'll be more of a, let me talk about this individual um, who God used uh, and work through the content that way. So hopefully you've enjoyed these character studies so far. I know Evan and I have. It's been fun to have a change of pace too. So yeah, uh, yeah this will be a fun one. John the Beloved. So to list off our resources for today, there's a ton of them. Uh, so we've got the ESV Study Bible, Logos Bible Software, uh, the Zondervan Bible Dictionary by J.D. Douglas, Merrill Tenney, and Moises Silva, The Essence of the New Testament by Elmer Towns and Ben Gutierrez, The New Testament and Its World by N.T. Wright and Michael Bird, and the Baker Encyclopedia, which is great, really fun, uh, and the Baker Encyclopedia of Bible People by Mark Water. Why it's called the Baker Encyclopedia by a guy named Water, I don't know, but you know. These are things to be a baker by profession. There you go. That makes the most sense. Really good Uh, cookie maker. So to, to look at, uh, to look at John's life, it pretty neatly divides into a few different sections. And so we'll, we'll go through it time by time, but um, there's John, John's time with Jesus. We don't get anything about his early life. So it's not like Jesus where we have a couple stories here and there. It's just, John's story does not begin until he meets Jesus. And that's pretty typical of most of these characters that we, we just don't know. I mean, we don't know a lot. It's a lot of times when they're interacting with Jesus and beyond, we don't hear a lot about their childhood or their, you know. Yeah. Interestingly, of the apostles, the one that we probably know the most about pre-Jesus is Paul, I would think. Um, I would agree with that. Of the actual 12 disciples, we don't know a ton. But even Um, with him, we don't know much of his childhood. All we know is what he was like before Christ and what happened on the road to Damascus and then after Christ. So So, there you go. Um, But the other sections of John's life would be John and the early church. So kind of what was John doing during the book of Acts? Uh, We'll call this next section, John the Elder, which is basically when we see John go from being 
the youngest disciple to being um, really one of the primary, um, I mean, bishops is kind of an interesting word to use, but you know, he's head of many churches. He's obviously like a, a very influential figure. He's one of the yeah. capital A apostles. Um, and then finally John in exile. So, and that's when he will write, you know, spoiler, that's when he writes revelation. Um, and that's kind of towards the end of his life. You just there, ruined so. the Bible for me. I know spoiled the whole thing. Just kidding. But as far as John's time with Jesus, um, like I said, we don't have a ton about him and we also don't have a ton about him extra biblically. There's a few things and we'll talk about that. Um, but most of what we know about John, we piece together from the new Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, so John and his brother James were fishermen and they are the sons of Zebedee and Salome. I actually didn't look up how to pronounce her name. Salome, who knows, but I'm going to go with Salome. You can't uh, see it, but I'm shaking my head at Evan right now. I'm sorry, Aaron. Okay. Uh, you don't disappoint me. I'm just mad. Yeah. That his mother is Salome is a little bit more inferred, but uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty safe inference, I suppose. So what that would mean, though, is that he would be the cousin of Jesus because she is Mary's sister. So there you go. Uh, they something ha- new every day. Shazam. Uh, because they had servants, we can assume uh, that they were more of a middle-class family at the time. Um, and you'll see why we know they have servants. And uh, I think it's coming up here in a second. We're, we'll read a passage. Um, but so that's, that's kind of what we know. They're about middle-class fishermen. They were in Bethsaida with, uh, with Peter and Andrew as well. Um, they obviously knew each other kind of beforehand. There's people in the same trade um, working in the same basic area. Uh, which, and then Bethsaida is on the northern border of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's a little bit east of Capernaum. And then mm-hmm. if you want to kind of picture where all this is happening, if you have the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida and Capernaum are at the very top. Um, they're pretty close to each other. And then Nazareth is a little bit more to the west. Um, and so it's not on the Sea of Galilee, but it's, it's close enough to where um, it's a region that Jesus would have been familiar with growing up in that area. So uh, John's life is changed when Jesus calls him to ministry. And we get that story in Mark uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Aaron, if you want to read Yeah, I got that. it. It says this, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For there, uh, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, "Follow me. I'll make you, I will be, make you become fishers of men." And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Yep. So there is the story. I do love how in all of those stories, um. It just kind of comes across as like Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And then they do. Um, what I do think is interesting, though, is that we do know that, and I didn't put this in the notes. I just kind of thought about it when we were reading it. But um, Andrew and John, I believe, were both disciples of John the Baptist. And so clearly, they would have been familiars, uh, familiar with his teachings. And so I think it's kind of interesting that if if this is all this is all inferred obviously so not saying that this is definitely what happened but you can kind of imagine that when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew Andrew's ready to go and he kind of brings Peter with him and then John is ready to go and he kind of brings James with him um, as well and we see that those four disciples particularly are very close with Jesus um, I totally forgot about that part with John the Baptist I did too that's why I like I said I didn't put it interesting in at all. I just like thought about it when we were reading I was like oh yeah dude crazy 
So there you go. Fun, fun, fun facts abound on the Let's Read the Bible podcast. Hey, we're already making headway. <laughs> uh, so John is extremely close with Jesus, um, even compared with the other disciples. So we kind of alluded to um, Jesus had this really interesting circle of friends, I guess is kind of a weird way to put it, but, you know, circle of people who, so there was the, there's larger groups than the mm-hmm. 12. Um, but the 12 disciples are kind of like his, his inner group of disciples. He had more disciples. We know that there's at least 120 uh, from the upper room and other areas like that. Um, but then of those 12, there's kind of the four, which is Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Um, and then even from that four, there's kind of a three, there's certain things that only uh, Peter, James, and John get to witness the transfiguration being one of them, which is a big one. Yeah. Which is a big deal. Um, and then we just get that P- that Jesus is extremely close to John. Uh, probably the best evidence of this is when Jesus is on the cross and we get this in actually the gospel of John uh, chapter 19, but it says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John's way of referring to himself, which is, yep. you know, Hey, I like it. Um, He's also the youngest disciple, which means there's probably some arrogance. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, he calls himself the beloved disciple. It's hilarious. I'm going to start referring to myself as the co-worker whom Aaron loves. But anyway, uh, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her uh, to his home. And so what we see in that moment is that, A, it's 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 a really beautiful moment of Jesus just thinking about his mom on the cross and making sure that she's taken care of, but also he chooses John uh, for this task. And we also Mm -hmm. see that John uh, from what we can tell is the only disciple who is with Jesus at his death. Um, Peter for sure was not. um, And we don't get mention of any, any of the other disciples being there with Jesus, except for John. So, yeah. Well, and there's also, maybe you said this and I missed it when you were talking, but um, there's also the, the handing off, like giving John the responsibility to provide and cover and care for his mom is a big deal. So yeah. there's a lot of trust extended, um, which shows you the closeness of Jesus and John. Um, and it, and it wasn't a woman, here's your son, but it was like, there's this responsibility that the son has in caring for his mom and his, his family, especially if, if dad isn't around or, you know, dad passed away or whatever. And so this is a significant moment on that cross where Jesus is in essence showing how highly he regards John by the simple act of giving John the responsibility now to care for Mary, uh, who was Jesus's mom. It's, it's, it really is a significant moment on the cross. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, the book of John ends in John 21, which we've talked about enough on this podcast. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to read it again, but that's the passage where, uh, Jesus visits the disciples again. And I always focus on Peter in that passage because I do think that's kind of like the beautiful story. But bear in mind that Jesus talks to Peter and John. And I do love that uh, classic Peter foot and mouth is like, well, what about, because Jesus tells him like, what hey, about John? he's like, hey, you're going to die. And Peter's like, what about John? And then Jesus is like, well, what is it to you um, if he stays alive basically until I come back? Which, um, spoiler alert, John stays alive a lot longer um, than all the other disciples. So yep, it's true. Which is, and I mean, in the one sense it's nice and the other sense it's really sad that um, when we get to kind of the later portions of John's life, uh, most of his 
close friends are gone. And mm-hmm. then you can, but, but, but you get to see this different side of John in that season of his life, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Uh, true. So moving on to John and the early church. So we're going to kind of talk about acts. Um, we don't get a ton about John um, in the early. It church. almost feels like he's omitted from the early church and he's not, but you're right. There's just not a lot of content regarding John. Um, and I do think there's, I think there's just kind of recognition that Peter is the leader of the disciples. And so yeah, I agree. What, what you see is in a lot of the stories, it's Peter's there are talking and then John is there. So clearly John is, John is around for a lot of this happening. Um, and also some of it might have to do with his youth as well, just kind of naturally deferring uh, to the older disciples in, in this period. Um, but I think one of the, uh, one of the really powerful passages is when John is uh, with Peter and they declare um, in front of the, the high council of the priests. And so we get this passage in uh, Acts chapter four. Uh, Aaron, if you want to read that one. Yeah. 13 to 20 is the verses where it says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Uh, that's a verse I like to hit on when I preach because I think it's so powerful. Anyways, uh, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had committed or commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For, the, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So John is maybe not around in acts as much as the other disciples, but he's clearly um, no less a major figure of the early church. Yeah. And you see there the boldness, which I love. Um, and it really is the boldness of people who, had personal relationship with Jesus. Cause they're just like, they'll get told all the time that you're going to die if you keep doing this. And they're just like, I don't, I, I don't know what you want me to do. Like I was with yeah. this guy. I saw miracles. He died. And then I saw him alive again. Like, there's like, I, I can't not tell people about this. Um, so yeah. And you see that in the early church, you see that in the early book of Acts, you see John is right there with the 12 and with Peter, um, even the healing of the the lame man at the gate called beautiful, you see Peter and John are right there and it's Peter and John respond. Uh, silver and gold have I none, but in, in the name of Jesus Christ and Nazareth rise up and walk. And, um, but then, and part of it is, I think the book of acts has a shift in it from, uh, early church and its leaders to then expansion and multiplication and going beyond the walls of Jerusalem, which is, you know, biblical and it, it's reflective of acts, you know, one eight, but, um, there is a role that John is still heavily involved. It's just almost like he's, you just don't hear much about him after the first, I don't know, handful or whatever of chapters in the book of Acts. Well, in, in fairness too, in Acts, there is a point where it's just about Paul now. Like it's yeah, kind oh of, yeah. there's, there's a section where, like you said, it's the early church. We're hearing about a lot of different stories. Um, and then it's like, well, let's talk about Paul. And that kind of finishes out the rest of um, the book. And, and that's because that's what Luke um, knows. He was actually yeah. there with Paul. A lot of the other parts of the book we can infer are him interviewing people, kind of seeing what happened. And then he writes down his own personal account, which will obviously be um, a little bit more detailed than what was happening before. Yeah, um, true. The, the final note with uh, the book of Acts is 
Uh, and this is kind of sad. John's brother, James, um, is killed by heaven. Not heaven, Herod. Jeez. <laughs> uh, John's brother, James, is killed by Herod um, not long after this. And he would be the first um, apostle to be martyred. So not the first martyr, because we know that's Stephen, but James would be the first of the 12 disciples yeah. uh, to be killed for his faith. And so... And it happens pretty quickly. I mean, it's in the book of Acts, at least, it happens pretty quickly with all of it, but... Yeah. And it's, one it's the, almost something you can read right past. It's not even, it's, there's no buildup to it in some respects, but yeah. I also think it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit of um, an evidence of just like the, the historicity, I suppose, of the Bible, just because all through the gospels, like I said, it's, it's Peter, James, and John are like the core three disciples. So if you're writing a book about like, these are the main characters. And then in the sequel, one of the characters just dies right off the bat in the, in the beginning. Um, it's pretty crazy. But that is what happened. And you also have to imagine that this would have a profound effect on John um, because obviously seeing your brother killed like that is not something that, um, you know, it's not a small thing. And I want to make sure when we read the Bible that we're not just, you know, skipping past a verse, like you said, even though it's like a really short, just little blip in the, in the chapter, but realize for John, um, this is one of those life defining moments, realizing that, um, he very well might also die for his faith and, and yeah. kind of moving forward in the, in the boldness and seeing that that is what can happen. So there you go. Um, and then there's a big gap. So we get the very, the stuff at the very beginning of the book of acts, and then we really don't know what happens. So that's probably about the book of acts is like maybe the mid forties about uh, early forties. Um as far as this, like part of the last things that John's involved with. And then we don't hear from him again until the mid eighties is kind of when his epistles are dated and his, and his gospel is dated as far as when it was written. So, uh, we don't know what happened to him. Nope. He's still around, but we don't know. At some point, uh, John would begin pastoring in Asia, uh, probably in like modern day Turkey, maybe Northern, uh, Israel, Northern Judea er areas like that. Um, but again, like we, even from his letters, it's not clear where he's writing from. And a lot of times yeah. Paul would say, Paul would actually write, you know, I'm writing from here. I'm writing to this church, whatever it is. But uh, John is, is not giving where he's at. We don't really know where he was a pastor of, um, but it seems like he's probably at a church or at mm -hmm. a, at least a, a region looking over the churches in that region. And so this is when John decides to write down his gospel. Um, it's dated later. It's like I said, the gospel is usually dated in the eighties as well. Um, and we kind of can get, we can kind of gather just from, from looking at it, that he's probably wanting to write things that aren't in the other gospels. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all, they're all dealing with very similar things. Um, it's they're, they're called the synoptic gospels because they're hitting a lot of the same themes. Normally what we see is Mark is dated as the earliest and then Matthew and Luke were probably written at around the same time. Um, and so if Mark is kind of being used as kind of the base point, which is, which is Peter's gospel, uh, Peter and John and Mark were very close. And so most tradition holds that Peter is the one kind of dictating to Mark. And then Matthew and Luke kind of can use that account. Matthew can add in things um, that either he knows or uh, like we know with the gospel of Matthew, his, his big concern is kind of showing that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So he's adding a lot of those themes. And then mm -hmm. Luke, it seems, is just kind of going through and interviewing people and then adding things that he's finding out 
in the into the gospel as well. So it's really interesting. And so, but we can infer again. This is super open hand, open handed. We have no idea if this is what actually happened, but we can kind of infer um, that these gospels are beginning to make their way around. And so John feels the need uh, to begin to write. And what we see is his gospel is so different because he's focusing on different things. He's focusing on different events, and he focuses also on. Uh, the last half of the gospel is really just the last week of Jesus's life. It's yeah. all about, you know, the last, it's the last supper, it's the cross. Um, it, it paints a more, a more intimate portrait of Jesus's relationships, which obviously John would have been privy to um, being yeah. so close to him. So, well, and John, even when he was writing the gospel, he wanted to talk a lot about the divinity of God. He wanted to talk, he wanted to show the signs and the, in the supernatural, the miraculous of Jesus's uh, ministry. He, I mean, there's a reason why we don't hear much about it. Jesus's birth uh, in the book of John. We, we get this um, poetic uh, di- dialogue uh, that, that models and, and reflects back to creation and Genesis where it's in the beginning. Um, and then it just kind of picks up. And the one, I mean, you'll see, depending on the translation you're reading, there will be moments like one of the ver- versions I'm reading right now talks about the fifth sign, the sixth sign. Like, and it just talks about the different signs and the miracles of, of Christ uh, for the half, for the first half of the book. And then, yeah, the next half of the book is it, it takes how many ever chapters? I don't remember off the top of my head right now, but to go through one week, it's, it's a pretty remarkable. I remember. And I think when we, I even think last year, Evan, you and I, when we were talking through the book, uh, we spent quite a bit of time on the podcast talking about that last week. And yeah. even as we broke through the book of John, we talked about quite a bit about that last week and the depth with which, um, John, uh, the, the disciple spends, uh, because he wants he, he wants to prioritize and, and highly value and reveal the divinity and the, the messiahship of Christ, if you will. And you can also kind of infer too, um, that more and more heresies along those lines are probably popping up at this point as well. Yeah. yeah maybe, I think you're right. Yeah. Maybe early on they weren't as much. And so John really is intentionally trying to say like, no, this is what, um, this is what we believe. Um, like we said before, it's a, it's really interesting to contrast early John with late John, because again, early John, youngest disciple, we see that in, in Acts, like we said, he's, he's not really speaking as much as definitely Peter is. Um, but later on, he, he takes on this really fatherly tone, uh, particularly in the epistles, which I think is just really fun. And in first John uh, chapter two, verses one through six, we kind of get this passage, which I love. Um, he says, my little children which is a great just fatherly expression right there. Um, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this way, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same in the same way which he walked. And so we get, you know, the beginning, very loving tone. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But hey, even if you do sin, we have our faith in Jesus. And then he goes through and, and offers some correction as well. And saying, you know, the important things are keeping the commandments of Jesus, which I think is a beautiful thing. Well, it's interesting because early on, I mean, go back to part of it, I think, and you mentioned his age, um, probably deferred more to the, the older Peter, more domineering, dominant personality. Um, so John didn't really, didn't really stand up and deal and lead in that capacity. I think he was a great 
so, you know, support, servant, whatever role. Um, but then you see a shift later on, just like Evan, you were alluding to is like, he's now an authoritarian. He now carries, you know, a certain layer of leadership and responsibility towards the end of his life. I think he also realizes he's one of the, the, the few disciples left. Um, and so he's, he's offering correction and rebuke, which comes through season and maturity and growth. Um, and so it's, it, it is, it is interesting to see the two play against each other, not play against each other, but are compared to each other. So, right. But it's just a shift. And then I guess we'll talk, well, tra- that's a good, um, transition to kind of talking specifically about his epistles. Um, and when we say epistles, what we mean is the letters that he wrote. Um, that's what epistles Not means. the gospel. Yeah. Right. Um, what's really interesting about first, second, and third John is how different all three of them are. Right. Um, so like first John is kind of, um, you could compare it with like maybe Romans or Ephesians, Galatians, like mm-hmm. those types of letters where um, it was probably meant to be read by a church and then circulated around m- multiple churches. And so there's nothing super personal in it. Um, it's just John basically writing. And it, it, it yeah. was, he was writing to uh, encourage Christians, which is really um, a beautiful thing. And you can see even when you're reading through First John, there, there's clearly some heresies that are beginning to pop up. He's correcting doctrine. Um, first John four, seven through eight is incredibly, um, it's probably the most famous of the, the John epistles. Um, but it, again, it's just talking about the importance of showing love, the importance of having love as Christians, which I think is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then second John was written to a specific, uh, specific to a specific church about basically dealing with false teaching. And so this is a thing that's beginning to pop up. He says to the beloved lady and her children, which is kind of just John's way of referring to, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't call a church the beloved lady and her children, but hey, John John uses that kind of language. If I ever plant a church, I'm going to totally call it the beloved lady. That's smart. Um, and then third John, I actually think is probably the most interesting of the epistles. Um, probably not the most powerful as far as doctrine or message goes, but um, it's written to uh, a pastor named Gaius. And it's literally just advice on how to handle someone who's being really difficult in his church. Um, yep. And that's what it's, it's incredibly short. I didn't write down the name of the guy who's being difficult, but he's basically saying, Hey, if he's causing strife, he's laying out what to do. And then he just encourages Gaius. So it, it very much reads not as a formal letter that's meant to be, you know, read in front of the church and spread around. Um, but it's a really personal letter between John um, and this pastor who he's, who he's overseeing. So really interesting stuff. Um, I would encourage you. And then if you want to read through all three epistles, it's probably like what a half hour of reading at the most to get through all of them. Yeah, at the most, depending on how fast you read or how slow you read. Yeah. Especially second and third John are both really short. Uh, First John's a little bit longer, but even then it's not, it's not very long at all. So there you go. Uh, All of that is happening in probably the mid eighties to the early nineties, eighties, somewhere in there. And then, we don't know exactly how this happens because this comes to us from tradition, but uh, late in John's life, he's exiled to the island of Patmos. Um, and so from Patmos is where we get. This is this, after no one could kill him. Right. He gets boiled alive, uh, according to tradition, survives, and then they just decide, well, we'll just get rid of this guy. So they just, you know, you know they Napoleon him, or, uh, or rather, <laughs> Napoleon got John, I guess is the way you yeah, describe it. Yeah, let's say it that way because that's. <laughs> That's a bigger compliment to Napoleon than it is to John. There you go. But uh, yeah, they stick him on this island. Um, and you would think that that's kind of the end of his story, that John would just kind of be done there. Uh, maybe like Paul, he writes a couple letters to some churches. 
I shouldn't trivialize those letters. Those are really powerful letters. But um, God has one more thing in store for John. And so he writes the book of Revelation, um, which is interesting because the beginning of the book is very much similar to what Paul does when he's in prison where Paul just kind of writes letters. Some of them he's encouraging, some of them he's rebuking. He's just talking to churches. That's what John does. If you read the beginning of Revelation, um, they're just short letters to churches. And then um, God gives John this incredible series of visions about um, what's coming. And Revelation is notoriously, it's notoriously very hard uh, to interpret because it's, it's meant to be vague. Um, the Bible, yeah. God is clearly not wanting to give a, a land. Um, I'm trying to think of, he's not trying to map out. Here's exactly what's going to happen in what year um, and watch out for the blood moons or whatever it is. But um, he's painting a picture of, you know, this is what is, this is what it's going to look like when, when I come back, when Jesus comes back and you get in it. Some of the, um, I say it's every time I talk about, it, but some of those beautiful passages of scripture, which would be like revelation 21, um, which is just a description of, of the new heavens, and the new earth. We just talked about it a few weeks ago in our, uh, in our heaven episode. Um, but those come from revelation and we, and we get this idea in the picture of revelation that there's going to be, um, that there's going to be hardships that even is even in history in general, there's going to be persecution that comes for those who follow Christ, there's going to be moments of incredible darkness. But, and this is, I think, the main point of the book of Revelation, that we always look forward to hope in the return of Jesus. And, and yeah. Revelation is a great reminder for all Christians that no matter what happens, um, that is where our hope is, which I think is Absolutely. just a, And I love the fact that that's kind of John's final thing that he writes, is just pointing the whole capital C church uh, towards hope in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we even did, uh, I think we did a specific podcast on the book of revelation, uh, a couple months ago or a month ago or something like that. So, um, we talk extensively about revelation as well, um, which is a much deeper dive than this, but yeah, I mean, it is a, that last, I mean, that book of revelation is, is significant. I mean, it's, it's not a, for John to have this vision. It's, and, and I almost wonder if it kind of felt um, encouraging in the moment cause he's on, he's exiled. So he he's there. Um, and he's not being able to preach the gospel anymore. It's, I, I, it's almost like he can't do what he's called to do anymore. Um, and that was the point of exile. Since we can't kill you, we're going to exile you. So you can't do what you want to do. Right. Um, but for, for him to have this immense and, and detailed and, um, vast vision, uh, of, of the future and, and the end times and, um, God, you know, coming back and redeeming his people and calling his people home. Um, I, I wonder how in that moment it was significant for John just to have this, okay, God, you can still use me. Um, but I mean, that's probably me more reading my, my own perspective into it, but I think it was, you know, the, the book, the book of revelation is a pretty phenomenal book. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess just to kind of wrap up talking about John a little bit about his legacy. Um, so kind of just, you know, what, what are the far reaching, um, parts of John? He wrote the third most, uh, of the new Testament behind Luke who wrote the most words, I guess you could say, and then Paul who wrote the most books. I was going to ask you, which way were you building basing off of the, the amount? So. Yeah. So it's kind of weird. Well, yeah. Cause if you're going by books, then John wrote the second most, but if you're going by just pure content word count, yeah, obviously the gospel of Luke and, uh, 
in the book of Acts are really meaty. So yeah. Well, for today's generation, it's character count. We'll just, we'll just say that there we're going go. off a of character count. Um, Emojis but included. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, what makes John unique, and we kind of talked about this earlier, is how different all of his writings are. So with Luke, he's writing history. Um, with Paul, he's writing epistles. Um, with John, he writes his own history. He writes his own gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, he writes three epistles, all of which are different. So he writes just kind of a generic epistle to some churches. He writes a specific epistle to a church. Then he writes a personal letter to a pastor, um, which we see Paul write those kinds of um, letters as well. And then he yeah. writes the only um, apocalyptic book of the New Testament, um, similar to like Daniel, I suppose, in the Old Testament. So all of those things together, um, John gives us a really, um, a really broad set of writings in the New Testament that we can always refer to. Um, and in particular, I think just John 21 and Revelation 21 are just two of my favorite chapters of the Bible. Um, and I love that uh, we get to have those because of the, the writings of John. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I know. John, John's a pretty, yeah, and I kind of already alluded to it. I just think the, the significance and the, um, I think the proximity of relationship to Jesus, I think um, the, all of those things uh, created a lot of influence um, in, in our lives today, but also throughout church history. I mean, he, he was one of the, not just the pillars, but he was one of the, I mean, the closest ones to Christ. And so he, dare I say it this way, he got things out of Jesus when Jesus was on this earth that none of the other disciples did. Um, right. Peter, Peter recognized the closeness of John to Christ, um, at at the last supper when he said, Hey, ask him who's going to betray him. And, um, obviously that's my paraphrase, but I just think there's such a significance of John. You can, you can read and understand and see the love he had for Christ and the way that Christ has transformed his life. Um, John was, was a very, um, a very deeply moved and deeply committed individual, um, and I don't think he, I don't think he hesitated one bit, even when his brother was killed. I don't think he hesitated one bit to stand for Christ and to continue to follow Jesus. Yeah. There's no um, hint that he hesitated. No. And so I think, I just think that like the legacy of John is pretty remarkable. Um, and I think he, there's been moments I'm like, my God, help me to walk like John walked, uh, as faithfully as he did and as close as he did. Um, and I even think, and you said this and I probably should have said it, then I thought it, but it comes back to my mind now, just at the cross, like if he was the only follower of Christ, one of the closest disciples at the cross of Jesus' death, um, that says something. It's yeah. it's pretty remarkable in, in and of that. So, And uh, no, that's absolutely true. And the, the final legacy point I want to hit on with John is just because he lived so long, um, you see this really cool far-reaching effect of later in life, th- this is probably a whole generation, two generations has come and gone um, since since Jesus and John is still around. He's still writing. Um, he's giving this great perspective to later Christians about um, what it was like to be with Jesus. And then finally, I think, and this is a really, this is just a really fun Christian history fact, I suppose. Um, one of John's disciples and probably his most famous disciple is uh, a man named Polycarp. So Polycarp was killed um, in AD 155. So to put that into perspective, that's 120 years, give or take, after um, Jesus's death and resurrection. At that time, there was still someone who had learned under someone who had direct contact with Jesus, which I think is just really cool. Yeah, that's um, pretty amazing. And 
Polycarp was martyred. Um, and I just love this is this, these were his last words, which I think are just so powerful and, and a great way to kind of sum up um, how he learned from John and just the power of, of faith in the midst of persecution. He said uh, when he was basically given, Hey, you're about to die. What are your last words? He said, 86 years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my King who saved me? I bless thee for deigning me worship of this day and this hour worthy, that I worthy of this day. Oh, what I say? Worship. Oh, that's embarrassing. Well, for it day, makes a big difference too. So that's why I said that's true. Deigning me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. Or in other words, they were giving him the opportunity to just deny Jesus and live. And he was saying, well, how could I, how could I ever do that? And it just reminds me of John saying, I can't help but, but tell about the things that I've seen. And then 100, 110, 120 years after John is saying that, here's one of his disciples saying essentially the same thing, obviously in different wording, but you know, I've served God for this long. He's never done me any harm. How can I, how can I help but, but serve him? So I think it's just a beautiful testament to, to who John is and, and what he taught people. So yeah, so go. good. Um, so yeah, let's transition to the Q and a portion of the podcast. Uh, we only had one come in this week, um, or I guess it came in last week. We just didn't get to it. Cause last week's episode was, we were talking about Ecclesiastes. We had to go long on that one. Uh, but before we get Hashtag to uh, Evan's favorite book, before we get to the Q and a portion, uh, just a quick reminder, uh, do us a favor, please leave a five-star review. Um, it just helps get the podcast out there to more people. It helps us to grow this community, um, of people reading the Bible together. And it's always just so fun for, for me and Aaron to be able to look, um, at the stats and see how it's not just people um, locally in our church who are listening, but it's people, you know, in California and Texas and Minnesota, like all these different uh, groups of people who are uh, beginning to catch on to the podcast. It's, it's been really fun. And hopefully um, it's been edifying for, for everyone who's listening. Good word, bro. Good word. Um, so finally uh, question one, or I guess the only question we have this week. Um, when I was growing up, we had church clothes. My dad always wore a suit. Um, and I remember, you know, when I was a kid, it was always, you know, there's specific outfits that were uh, church appropriate, not church appropriate. Uh, nowadays, we can show up in regular clothes and pastors often preach in jeans and a t-shirt. With that in mind, can you explain what Jesus meant in Matthew 22 verses 11 through 13? Didn't he invite everyone uh, per verses eight through 10? Seems weird to chuck them out just because they couldn't dress fancily. Okay. So listen, you don't got the right clothes. You're not worthy. Yeah. I'm just kidding. It is just kidding. It is. It is interesting. Um, so to kind of recap what was going on, we'll just do a quick, a quick paraphrase of, of that story is there's a master. He's inviting everyone to his wedding feast or a wedding feast. Um, and then a bunch of people just make excuses for the, why they can't come. And he's kind of fed up with it. And so he says to his servants, okay, you know what? Just go out into the streets, grab people, um, invite them in. And then there's one guy who shows up, but it says that he's not in a wedding garment. Um, and so he throws him out to where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, I believe it says as well. So there you go. So what's the deal with that? Um, well, first off, I'd say um, the regular clothes thing, it's more of a, um, that's more of a style thing because there are still churches that are very formal. Um, which I don't, I don't think necessarily is a, is a bad thing. Um, our church is definitely more casual in the sense of, you know, Hey, wear what you want. Um, and then the, none of please the, let it be appropriate. 
yeah, appropriately. But you know, if you want to show up in jeans and a t-shirt, that's totally fine. If you want to wear a suit to church, that's fine too. We're not going to turn you away. Um, but yeah, that's not, that's not necessarily every church. It's more just kind of a cultural thing. Um, but as far as what's going on in that story, it's kind of similar to weddings today where, you know, you're supposed to dress nice. It's a, uh, it's a sign of, it's a sign of respect. And so one of the, uh, one of the things that is being hinted at in the story is that it was just disrespectful of the person to come. And it would be the same thing if, um, you know, if one of my friends is getting married, I'm not going to show up wearing shorts and a t-shirt because you just want to show, um, you want to show the respect of, of what you're happening. Uh, furthermore, in ancient times, there's even stories of Kings providing wedding garments to their guests, which is kind of an interesting layer to it. Um, so the inference could be made, um, that Jesus is calling to something where, um, essentially the King is already providing these things to the guests and he's saying, Hey, wear, wear these when you come to the feast. Um, but as far as what the parable is talking about, it's, it's, it's not meant to represent, you know, wearing fancy clothes, um, to church or anything like that. Really what it's talking about, um, is, and you have to stop thinking, you know, what do these wedding garments represent? A lot of the interpretations that I'm reading, which I, which I agree with is it's probably talking about accepting God's forgiveness of sins. Um, or in other words, if Jesus, if God is saying, you know, be with me, have a relationship with me, simply put on this garment. You could translate that, I suppose, as saying, you know, have relationship with me, just trust in Jesus um, or confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Um, and so what the person showing up to the wedding feast without the garments on is similar to someone kind of showing up to God and saying, well, I don't really believe that stuff. Um, but Hey, you know, I'm here is kind of what the story is meant to infer a little bit more. That's kind of what I would, that's where I would land. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, I, I think you're right in a sense, going back to like the, the clothing thing for church, I think there's a cultural thing. I remember as a kid, uh, my mom and I got in a kind of a, a little fight over it. Cause I didn't like the fact that she told me I couldn't wear shorts to, uh, an evening service on Classic Sunday nights. Mom. Um, and my junior high leader at that time wore shorts. My junior high, I think he was like the junior high director or whatever. He wore shorts. And I remember like, why can't I wear shorts? He's wearing shorts. And my mom's like, cause that's not what we do. Um, so I've gotten over that. I've had many, many years of counseling just to get over that, but, that's good. uh, not really, I'm kidding. But, um, I do think you got to remember that first off, it's a parable. Um, that's what, I mean, it starts off. And as I'm looking at it now, like the parable of the wedding banquet and the point of parables was to always, um, reveal and help uh, those listening understand uh, a kingdom concept. It, it was about the kingdom of God. And, and what, what's being referred to is the invitation is to everyone to, to be a part of this wedding, or in other words, to be a part of God's kingdom, to be a part of his family. Uh, and in doing so, their response, it's, they, were, they were then clothed in righteousness. I mean, it's, that's the picture. It's, they're either clothed in righteousness or they're clothed in you know, self-righteousness, which is, as Paul would say, filthy rags. And, and those are the two things that are being alluded to. And so the point of the parable is to highlight you know, the idea of not just response to um, the invitation of Christ to be a part of the family of God, but to put on the right clothing, the clothing of righteousness, living, and Evan alluded to it, when it comes to how do we as Christians live righteously, we live by faith. We, you know, confess with our mouths and faith and belief in Christ as the son of God. And, um, and so that's the, that's the tension he's painting uh, in this parable of the wedding banquet. 
Um, the purpose of a parable was to teach that kingdom principle. So it's a kingdom principle. It's not a practical, you need to wear nice clothes to church or you're going to hell. It has nothing to do with that. It has, we have to put on the right clothes, which means we have to die to ourselves, pick up our cross, follow Christ. That's the righteousness that will be accepted when we stand before uh, God in eternity. So, yeah. And if you don't wear those clothes, you're cast out into darkness. Boom. Where there's whipping and gnashing of teeth. Yes, because it says it in Matthew 22. All right. Well, I can't think of uh, a better spot to end it than there. Um, But just a quick reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources and podcasts on our website at grove.church. See you guys next week. Have a great day.